When it comes to federal contracting, sometimes what's old is new and what's new is better than before. The Biden administration is resurrecting an enterprise software licensing initiative with more complete data and 20 years of understanding what it takes to be successful. It's all part of its Better Contracting Initiative. Federal News Network's Jason Miller got more from the senior advisor in the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, Christine Harada. The Better Contracting Initiative is the next piece of that puzzle, and its goal is to ensure that taxpayers fundamentally get the best best value for their money, uh, namely through leveraging government data, expertise, and purchasing power to buy the goods and services that the government needs to serve the American people. And we do that via four different work streams. We're able to leverage our size and function much more as an organized buyer through using our acquisition data, leveraging lessons learned from buying experiences, eliminating price disparities, reducing post-award modifications that ultimately end up costing both programs and taxpayer dollars, uh, and certainly last but not least, reducing the risks of inflated prices in sole source environments. So it sounds like this is really focused on getting the best price for the agencies. Uh, I was at a industry day earlier this week from the Defense Information Systems Agency. They're focused on getting the best pricing. Is this something that's been talked a lot about? And, and you've heard from the Chief Acquisition Officers Council and others saying, hey, getting the best price at the right time for the right volume has really been a struggle for agencies? I don't know that I'd say it's a struggle so much as we really want to do better and more. Right. So we are leaps and bounds ahead of where we have, were, especially since if you think about it from the 2016 timeframe when I was here during the Obama administration with the amount of data that we have across the federal enterprise. Um, and so one of the areas of focus that we're doing today or that we're launching today around leveraging data to be able to help get the lower prices and better terms that you just talked about um, are certainly is certainly one of the first pillars around that. And to that end, we're launching a new centralized data management strategy supported by a new uh, draft OMB circular to facilitate a more robust sharing and analyzing of acquisition data across the federal enterprise. It's not just about pricing, but also what are the terms, what are the conditions to be able to help provide that kind of context uh, it'll also include enhanced market research, vendor performance data, et cetera, to be able to, again, strengthen the agency's abilities to better negotiate their deals. We also are will be undertaking an effort to negotiate common enterprise-wide software licenses. Uh, we're looking to improve the government's negotiation posture to help reduce the price variance, as well as securing more favorable terms and conditions and, of course, especially in this particular case, improving and making more consistent our cybersecurity posture across the entirety of the federal government. On the data piece, uh, this is uh, fascinating. Now, a lot of the work that the General Services Administration has done over the last few years with whether it's the transactional data reporting or their uh, 4P portal, are you leveraging or, or taking advantage of a lot of that initial work? Yes, absolutely. It absolutely does build on a lot of the work that uh, the Transactional Data Reporting Program, or TDR program at GSA, has been working on for a number of years. We call it the high-def framework, or the high-definition acquisition data framework. Uh, the circular that you will see posted online later today uh, includes both a framework and a data environment that helps provide a little bit more of a coordinated approach to this. Um, it also includes some of the governance information around how we're all going to be collecting, uh, working together collectively. The rollout of the data strategy, give me some basics of, of 
who's going to lead it comes from your office or comes from GSA or Treasury Department? And then what are some of those kind of short-term goals around getting this data strategy in use in, in place and people can, you know, other, other agencies can start taking advantage of it? Yes, the policy first is going to be coming out first and foremost from us here at OMB. Again, leveraging a lot of the lessons learned from various agencies that have actually been working on this. The framework will be supported by, again, the data, the much more higher definition acquisition data environment. That'll be provided through the agencies. Uh, we've got a number of a number of requirements in the circular itself that we're going to be working collectively with the CAO community to make sure that they are being implemented. It also, uh, the circular also includes requirements for agencies to very actively contribute uh, to like existing knowledge portals on innovative techniques and emerging technologies and making sure that they are posting it and organizing it uh, in a publicly available manner and sharing that across the system. And of course, uh, working with uh, other resources like FAI, uh, as well as DAU to help build out some of those related skills uh, as a core acquisition workforce capability. We will obviously make sure we can link to that uh, new circular and, and uh, of course, the fact sheet that you all issued around the uh, Better Contracting Initiative on federalnewsnetwork.com so folks can find that easily enough. The enterprise software licensing. Now, Christine, this is something that was uh, attempted many times uh, over the years, and I think there's a little bit of frustration or a little bit of, oh, here we go again. First of all, how many times did you hear, well, you know, Christine, we've done this before and it didn't work. Did you hear that about this initiative before and, and what's different this time? Yeah, no, I, I certainly have heard that before. Um, and I think, you know, a couple of things are really different about it first this time. I think, number one, we collectively as a community have evolved to be much more cohesive in this regard. I think, you know, back in the day when we first tried it what, seven or eight years ago, at this point, we didn't have the information. We didn't have the data that we do now. We didn't have the governance model around that data. We didn't have the sharing culture that we really tried to inculcate through the last seven, eight years. We've also stood up um, an entity at GSA called the IT Vendor Management Office or the IT VMO. They have been phenomenal partners with us in working to help gather the contract documents and pricing information from agencies and really analyzing that. Uh, thanks to their support, they're currently taking a look at over 700 contract documents and pricing data. Uh, we've assembled an integrated project team consisting of a group of 14 experts from 13 different agencies of different skill sets of contracting officers, procurement attorneys, um, you know, subject matter experts, uh, with particular softwares, et cetera, to develop that list of ideal government-wide terms and conditions. And last but not least, there have been an increasing number of cybersecurity incidents associated with these types of software that we as a federal government can no longer really tolerate from a risk management type of perspective. Recognizing this is a whole the nation kind of issue, uh, but this is something that really, that candidly was one of the bigger hooks, if you will, or uh, instigations for this particular effort again. Did you also hear from vendors who, you know, 10, 12, 15 years ago who were a little tepid on this now are like, yeah, if you can make it so I don't have to have 12 different contracts with the Army or 15 different contracts with the Interior Department and I can have one, that would save us a ton of time and a ton of effort. Is that also what's driving this? That, we have certainly heard that uh, as well from our uh, stakeholder community, for which, by the you know, I'm very grateful because candidly, it also helped validate uh, the experience as well. I don't see it as a driver per se, but I was very heartened to hear 
many other vendor community folks expressing the same thing as well, because it only benefits the vendor community as well to see, you know, reasonably standardized terms and conditions and the products that they could be, should be selling to the federal government. And it should not have to be that we should make it easier for the vendor community as well. Christine Harada is senior advisor in the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective. We get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. 
And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, 
I realized that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, 
that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and work alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.